0: Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, we are joined by Dr. Sandy Richter. Sandy is the Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College. She earned her PhD from Harvard University's Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations Department and her MA in Theological Studies from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She is passionate for the real space and time of the biblical text and has spent many years leading student groups in archeological excavation and historical geography classes in Israel. Her scholarly publications include an array of technical studies of the history, society, and economy of the Hebrew Bible. She is best known in the church for her work The Epic of Eden, a Christian entry into the Old Testament, and several adult Bible curriculums with Seedbed and HarperCollins. Recently, Sandy released a video course with Seminary Now titled Stewards of Eden, Scripture and the Environment. She is a sought-after speaker and teacher for ministry conferences, retreats, leadership events, and academic events.
1: Hi, Sandy. So great to see you. Thanks for coming on the Alabaster Jar. Uh, The privilege is all mine, and what fun it is to talk about these topics and get to talk about them with you. So thanks. Yeah. Oh, you bet. You bet. Well, Sandy and I, we go go back a little ways, although I'm going to say, Sandy, you don't look any older than when I saw you, I don't know, a little while ago. I'm not going to name dates here or anything like that. However, I just saw a picture of your two girls, and they have grown into lovely young women. And how does that happen, Sandy? Like I did not give them permission to grow up. I don't know what's going on. I know. I used to tell Elise all the time, don't grow up. And when she was little, she'd get all concerned. She's like, mom, I can't help it. And now she just says, tough beans, mom. So <laughs> yep. Too bad. Well, Sandy and I were neighbors for a while when we both worked at Wheaton College. And now you're out in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. because you're smart. And uh, and so you leave the Chicagoland area uh, like, you know, to warmer climes. Yeah. Well, and um, not to brag, because I know what it looks like outside your window, but I hung my Christmas lights while my roses were blooming. And yeah, I hate you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. When, it, okay. when it drops to <laughs> 60 degrees here, people start pulling out the down. Just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're just going to jump to another topic yeah. then okay, right go now. Ahead. Okay? Go ahead. <laughs> we're going to move on. There's lots I want to talk about because um, you've written so much. But We're going to start with a project that you've, um, you've worked on for years. I mean, it's when I think of your scholarship, I think of it starting with this work called the Epic of Eden. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that work? What, what drew you to write it? And um, it, it, you know, it's an an Christian entry into the old Testament. Um, Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about that work and and why you chose to uh, immerse yourself Hmm. in it. Well, Thanks for asking. Um, Epic of Eden, I, I joke about it being my soul on paper, and it's not It's not really a joke. It's, it's everything. If, if I could say everything I wanted in a class, especially of, of newcomers, you know, a, a, a fresh seminarian or uh, an undergraduate who really wants to get a grip on their Bible, this is what I would say to them. And its goal uh, is to put uh, a believer's Bible together for them. And as you know, oh, so well, uh, folks can be in the church for decades and still really not have a handle on their own Bible. And part of, you know, part of me is, uh, is, is mad about that. The other part of me is just sad about that. This is our inheritance. This is... God's self-revelation to us, um, that this is who we are. So there's, there's nothing I want more than to put the Bible into the hands of God's people. And the Epic of Eden really grew out of years and years of teaching Old Testament in a way that, um, it gave people their their Old Testament back. And the metaphor that I use in the book uh, over and over again is the idea of a messy closet. And, uh, you know, this is this is good evidence that women have entered biblical studies, right? So the, the <laughs> metaphor so <laughs> is no longer the NBA or the NFL. The metaphor is now a messy closet. And I, love it. I find, especially with Old Testament, this is a really apt metaphor, that people have a lifetime of acquisitions shoved into Monica's closet. Yes, that's a friend's reference. And they're almost afraid to open the door because of all the stuff that's going to fall out onto their heads. And they certainly can't make use of that lifetime of acquisitions. So my goal in the book was to take all of those good gifts, organize them like a good closet organizer would do, and uh, make it accessible, give it back to them. So a lot of the book is dedicated to connecting the old to the new, because of course, people are pretty clear on who Jesus is. Uh, they know where their faith is is rooted. They just don't know who their their ancestors in the faith were. So it's a lot of connecting Old and New Testament, connecting the major themes of the Old to the New Testament, and then getting that Old Testament into a place where they can open up the door of their closet and they can pick out shirts and pants and belts and accessories. and And they actually know where they are when they throw that closet door open. So that's kind of an overview. No, that's great, and I love the theme of the closet. That is so apt. You you mentioned there's some major themes that you uh, that you highlight. Um, what what would be some of those? As I'm thinking about organizing my own closet or the lack thereof, its organization. There are times when I think, okay, should I? Hang all of my blouses together or do I hang all the green stuff together? You know, there's different ways to organize. So tell us the themes. And I've, I've got to say, and if this gets cut out of the podcast, I'll understand. But one of my favorite Lincoic quotes ever is, I don't need to make a decision. That's what basements are for. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that is. that is that. Right. So everyone now does have an idea of what my closets. Not your closets, yeah. but your basement. No. Yeah. My basement. There you go. Yes. No. That's right. So my closet's pretty good. You just there's are certain <laughs> it's true. I'm gonna own that. I'm, but. I'm gonna think it was a a down coat or something, but whatever. Okay, back to what are the themes. Uh, what what I do with a book is um that organizing business. Um I offer infrastructure. I I think that for us as biblical scholars, that's our job when we get in front of any audience. We're the experts. They're busy drinking out of a fire hydrant. It's our job to offer structure. So uh, the major theme of the book is walking the reader through the covenantal structure of the Bible. There's so many organizing principles that you could tag into as you're trying to get into your Bible. My goal is to make an internal organizing structure explicit as opposed to imposing a new structure on the text, which we all know that our colleagues over in systematics do all the time, right? So (laughs) that internal organizing principle, we already know it. We know it's the old covenant and the new covenant. What a lot of folks don't realize is there's actually uh, covenants relationships between God and humanity that are divine multiple times. So Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. These are the six great covenant mediators. These are the six great covenants of the Bible. This is the internal structure. So I walk them through each one of those covenant relationships, and I ask the same question of each covenant. Of, and, and covenant, we should know, is a definition of relationship. That's, that's what it's all about. In fact, if we would take our entire Bible and distill it down into one statement, it would be so that I might be with you. I mean that's that's the goal of redemption. So the question that I ask of each of those covenantal moments is people place and presence. Who are the people that God is covenanting with? What is the place that he is promising them? And how is he making his presence available to them? And not only does that organize all the data of the Bible, it also uh, inductively teaches a hermeneutic, which, as we both know, is critical to the modern reader. They don't know the word hermeneutics, the science of interpreting scripture, but they're all doing it. And to help the reader do it intelligently. How do the people of Abraham's covenant change when we step into the new covenant? How does the place of the Mosaic covenant change when we step into the new covenant? How does the presence make himself available in David's Jerusalem versus how the presence make himself available um, to the church? So I would I would say those are the big themes, that covenantal structure and then asking the question of people, place and presence as we move through the story. Oh, that's great. Can you give a few examples of as you've been teaching this where students um, have just had the, one of those aha uh, moments. Like, I never thought of it that way. What, what, cause I'm sure that brings great joy to you. What were some of those times? Absolutely. Great joy. I, I live for that. Um, it's kind of like, it, as you know, being a professor is a bit like being an addict, you know, <laughs> and that aha moment. What, like, fill, fill that out a little yeah, bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the endorphin moment, right? Yeah. When you yeah. see that light bulb go off in the eyes of your students, when they connect um, and for me, man, if I can make my class cry, I'm I'm good for a week. Uh, and uh, just that that moment of having them recognize and celebrate their own inheritance. So uh, one of the things I do big time in Epic is I teach uh, cultural context, which for most folks stepping into the Old Testament, uh, they they're having a cross cultural experience and they don't realize it. And so I help them realize you're stepping into someone else's space and time. And just like that missions trip that you went on, um, you know, in high school uh, radically changed your understanding of what, you know, Central America looks like and that it doesn't look just like the Wheaton suburbs. Um, and people have all sorts of different rules of engagement and and courtesy in Japan is worlds different than courtesy in California or whatever, Um, I do a lot of that in the book. And so I'll have a lot of aha moments about them coming to understand what tribal culture looks like, that patriarchal, patrilineal, and patrilocal are not just words we curse about in the 21st century. They're actual anthropological definitions of how a culture functions. Um, And as they, you know, as it dawns on them that Yahweh is presenting himself to humanity as the ultimate patriarch. And if we jump to the new Testament, the father in the story of the prodigal son, who is truly caring for his household, who is uh, waiting with bated breath for the return of the prodigal child, who is defender, protector, provider, um for them to put their God into that role and 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 realize what that looked like in Israel's world not only is it revelatory it, in light of a lot of the studies you do it's healing um, especially for you know for that young woman that young man who didn't have a productive, a productive father image to, Recognize why God's putting himself in that role. Um, For them to see what a firstborn son in a tribal culture embodied. And the fact that the father would give away his um, in order to win us back. Uh, The whole idea of an alienated family member and paying a ransom for that family member. uh, In order to bring them back inside the family circle, that where I am there, you may be with me. Um, All of these are are big moments, typically in class. Um, The typological moments are fun, and typology for our listening audience is one of the major interpretive moves of the New and Old Testament, that our our New Testament writers are picking up images and uh, people and events of the Old Covenant and reinterpreting them for the church, so when my students finally get a handle on how the tabernacle functions, that this is the place that God dwells among his people, that he's right here making himself available. And yet only one man once a year actually gets to step into God's presence, the high priest on the day of atonement and the Holy of Holies. And then when they realize that the word became flesh so that he could tabernacle among us. And at the crucifixion, the veil is torn in two. And that over the course of his ministry, the leper and the woman with the issue of blood and the outsider and the Gentile all not only have access to the Holy of Holies, but touch the hem, the veil of his garment, Yeah. That usually get them crying, which is my goal. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't stop with Epic of Eden though. You have a new work called stewards of, sorry, Epic of Eden. You didn't stop with that. You continued with stewards of Uh Eden. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's that all about? Yeah. What's that one all about? Uh, so uh, I understand you had Kristen page on, um, alabaster jar not long ago. Um, yep. so, uh, Kristen was my, my partner in crime for the evolution of a lot of that book. And as I say, partner in crime, uh, she, uh, Kristen and I applied for a grant at Wheaton college and she is, a Big endowed chair, muckety muck of biology, and me, a lowly professor of Old Testament, we um, partnered to teach the first ever environmental stewardship class at Wheaton College. And I remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was so awesome. Yeah. And we had 20, 25 students sign up for it, largely because they could, you know, get dual credit and science and. Bible, you know, double dipping. But I'm joking, they were they were fabulous human beings. What happened in that class during the first session is the answer to why I wrote Stewards of Eden. So Stewards of Eden is uh, a book about environmentalism from a Christian perspective, right? Um, what does the scripture have to say about the environment and why does it matter is the subtitle. So when Chris and I hosted that class, uh, the first session, like oh, so many professors before us, we did an ice breaking exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And every student within the sound of my voice has been subject to this particular icebreaker. Um, And that is, uh, tell us your name, your major, and why you decided to take this class. You know, all the profs, raise your hand if you've ever used this icebreaker. And the answer, of course, is all of us. And um, for the students out there listening, we will confess that we partly do it just to buy time. Okay, (laughs) um, So we did the exercise. Yeah. We're going around the room. There are 25 students sitting in there and they're all fabulous Wheaties. They are all well-educated, socially informed, um, uh, societally active, and uh, theologically nuanced. Yeah. And they're also good science students to say that as well. Every one of those students said the same thing. Every one of them. And what they said was, I've always loved the outdoors. And then they would fill in the blank with hiking in the Ozarks, um, uh, the land of the lakes, you know, in northern Wisconsin, um, watching the dolphins and the channel sound off um, the Santa Barbara coast. They would fill in the blank with something and they would go on to say, um, so I, I, I've always loved the outdoors and God's creation. I've always felt um uh, close to God in these encounters, but I never understood that I as a Christian could love both God and nature creation and advocate for both of both of those loves as a Christian. So I'm so grateful you offered this course. They all said the same thing. And after we got around the room, Chris and I looked at each other and said, me too. We, Both had come to faith with this profound sense that God was manifesting himself to humanity through creation, that God expected us to love the things that he loved. Yeah, we'll say that about orphans. We'll say it about um, the victims of sex trafficking. We'll say it about the marginalized. But will we say it about the garden to love the things that God loves? And Chris and I both had the same testimony. We did not know as professionals in our fields and as Christians, that we were allowed to advocate for both. So it was that background in my own life that uh, led me to the place where I had to publish this book. And my ultimate goal was to put together almost a tract of sorts. Like the book is just shy of 100 pages on purpose, The first half of every chapter addresses uh, what the Bible has to say about a a particular environmental topic. So I start off with creation as God's blueprint for what humanity's relationship with creation was supposed to look like. Then I walk through the people of the Old Covenant and uh, sustainable uh, land use, care for the domestic creature, care for the wild creature, environmental terrorism, the widow and the orphan. And then I walk through the new covenant with the same ambitions. So the brief chapters, each, um, the first half of every chapter is what the Bible has to say. And then the second half of every chapter is a contemporary case study that demonstrates to us as a community of faith in a global 21st century context, how we're not living up to God's expectations. And then the last chapter is a call to action. But one of my most uh, strongest ambitions in writing Stewards of Eden, especially thinking about those Wheaties sitting in front of me, was to reassure these wonderful emerging adults that even if their home church might've failed them on this particular topic, their faith had not failed them, that the Bible does address this issue and it addresses it in a redemptive, compelling, um, disciplinary fashion. And my, my thought process in sticking with scripture, because I do, this is, this is if the Bible doesn't address it, I don't address it. So you're not going to find climate change in stewards of Eden, for example, But my ambition in doing that is that my college students could read the book, could recognize, hey, my Bible addresses this issue. They could bring it home, give it to their parents, and their parents could say, oh, our Bible addresses this issue. And if I really scored, that their grandparents could pick it up Mm -hmm. and say the same thing. So well, yeah, that is that is fantastic. I think there is kind of um this issue is politicized in in a way that almost takes the bible out of the conversation. Yes. So by you bringing it back in, I mean that that's where it should be in the center mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. What um can you think of one or two aha moments uh that people either in that class or since you've uh, publish Stewards of Eden. What you've heard, some aha moments from people. Well, it's funny you should you should mention politics because that's what wound up becoming the introduction. And you know how you kind of write the introduction two or three times, like you write it before you write the book, and then you write it after the write your book, and 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 then before the final version goes up. So the introduction turned into three reasons why the church is so paralyzed on this topic. And the first reason is politics. And in American politics in particular, because this isn't true in Europe. I was over at the London School of Theology giving their Lang lecture, and I was going to title it, uh, Should a Christian Be an Environmentalist? And they're like, what are you talking about? Of course, Christians should be environmentalists. This isn't a political issue for them. Their candidates are busy competing to see who can be greener, unlike American politics. So that is my, my lead issue. That what has happened with environmentalism because the standard American political parties are such that uh, the allies of environmentalism in our politics are not the standard allies of the church so that if you're pro-life you can't also be pro-environment if you're a patriot you can't be a conservationist uh, therefore if you're an environmentalist supposedly you can't be a Christian I challenge folks right off the bat, can we put our American politics uh, to the side for just a moment and focus on kingdom politics? Because, of course, as citizens of another kingdom, that should be our, our ultimate alliance. So that's right up front. And that usually disarms an audience um, as we move forward. Then the other big issue is common to all social justice issues, especially for Americans, Um, and the educated elite, we don't see the impact of environmental degradation. We don't see its impact on the widow and the orphan. We don't recognize that it is the marginalized who suffer first when we're irresponsible with uh, issues of environmental stewardship. So it's hard for us to see environmentalism as an expression of care for the widow and the orphan, which it totally is. Um, And then the third one that you know better than I is this business about how it's all going to burn anyway? Not that he's in favor of it. Let's just be clear. Yeah. We are anti burn it all. It it isn't going to burn it all. Yes. Let me rephrase that because it is not all going to burn anyway. It is not the privilege of um, the children of Adam and Eve to burn it all down. Um, Yeah. So those are the three big issues that I think have paralyzed the church And then again, as they walk through the book, when people realize that the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's constitution and bylaws, a law code that could date as early as 1200 BC, actually has laws about protecting the habitat of the wild creature, actually has laws about humane animal husbandry, sustainable uh, land use, environmental terrorism, Deuteronomy has a law about environmental terrorism and God instructs his people that even though the Egyptians are doing it, even though the Mesopotamians are doing it, you're not going to do it. Uh, these laws, if they had actually structured our society, uh, we probably wouldn't be looking at an environmental crisis. So those, yeah, are, yeah. those are some highlights. Uh, um, another point that the church usually grabs hold of pretty hard, is uh, my call to action toward the end of the book. And in good Francis Schaeffer style, I entitled the uh, the conclusion, How Should We Then Live? And I make use of this really interesting quotation that comes from a fellow named Gus Speth. And if you're not involved in environmental politics, you probably won't know his name, But if you are, and if you're familiar with the EPA and some of the early movements in our country toward environmental responsibility, you will know Gus best name because he was the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality under President Jimmy Carter. He also launched two or three uh, major environmental organizations. He spent his whole career in environmental issues. And here is a quote that I pulled out of one of his publications toward his retirement. And he says this, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists, we don't know how to do that. Isn't that wow. phenomenal? Wow. Yeah. That, and, and, and that resonates with me. It resonates with the biblical text, doesn't it? I mean, that's the, the root of so much is greed, um, which Paul will say in Ephesians is idolatry. Yeah, we're putting the self before God and others. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about Deuteronomy and how it functions. It can function in the uh in ways to help us better understand the world around us. But I also know that you looked at Deuteronomy in terms of finances and economics. And often I just these two are not usually juxtaposed, right? You have environmentalists who don't care at all about finances or you have the economist who doesn't want to hear about environmental issues but in you we can bring them all together because you have through the, your analysis of Deuteronomy talked a lot about the the uh, economics that we find or the fi- the financial the money the money that's going on in Deuteronomy and I'm going to brag on you here just a little bit i've heard this this talk a couple of times in different venues, but you were invited to speak just this last year at the premier um, organization for archaeologists, the acronym ASOR, um, on this very topic. So thank you for um, for bringing it to our listeners here at Alabaster Jar. Mm, well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, again, for your listeners, one of the things that we as as biblical scholars are constantly trying to do is figure out how to translate our scholarship into material that the church can access. And the very fact that this podcast exists is one of those efforts, yeah? And um, kudos to Lynn Coick and to her seminary for trying to make this sort of stuff happen. So my research on economics is that other side of my personhood, you know, my technical, scholarly, um, inaccessible stuff. And for the typical layman, it, it's it's hard to get their hands around it because there's lots of archaeology and epigraphy and all that falderall. Um, but the bottom line of my studies on juxtaposing, uh, economics in Deuteronomy, uh, my bottom line was to ask questions of provenance. Uh, We always want to know where is the biblical author standing as they communicate this text to us? Uh, What is his social location? And I always say this to my students. I apologize that it probably is his social location. Um, What, what does the world look like around that author as they attempt to communicate the text to us? Because in knowing the author We're going to understand what they have to say to us way better than if we try to slap our social context onto theirs. So the questions I was asking in my economic studies was, um, as, as we look at the assumed economic details of Deuteronomy, the stuff the author isn't trying to tell us, the stuff the author is accidentally telling us, where can we find him or her? And the answer to that, very interesting, is way back in the origins of Israel's experience. You know, we're looking at uh, what an archaeologist would say, the transition between the Iron One and the Iron One age, when we look at the details of economy. Now, that doesn't mean the book wasn't handled again or again as it, it moved forward in the experience of the community of faith, but that original law code is... Speaking to a community that's living a very simple, village-based, uh, kinship-structured life, and in that context, and in a context where people are dealing with significant issues of limited resources, um, one way I communicate that is talking about the the hungry season that every anthropologist. Uh, could uh, detail to us from an, uh, an agricultural society basically that period of time between when last year's harvest came in, or when last year's harvest ran out, and when this year's harvest comes in. It's called the hungry season, and every agricultural community experiences it when uh, the food resources are have have run out. And how are we going to keep everybody fed until next year's harvest comes in? Well, the archaeologists in particular, Baruch Rosen, have demonstrated that Israel is experiencing a 60-day hungry season, typically. And with a 60-day hungry season, the average Israelite farmer is being asked to leave uh, the remnant of his harvest in the field. Don't go back over your trees again. Don't go back over your field again. Uh, Leave the figs and the olives for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. And they're being asked to do these things in a context where their own children are hungry. Don't muzzle your ox while he threshes the grain. Let him enjoy his life and work, even though he could consume 15, 20 quarts of critically needed grain. Um, allow the impoverished to come and glean in your fields. These are all commands that we sit back as Americans in our surplus. We're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Whereas the Israelite is sitting in a a setting where they know they're going to be hungry and they're obeying these commands anyway. I find that so compelling. Oh, that is so powerful when When we lived uh, in Kenya, we were there three years. and the first year we were there, they had a lot of rain, which meant a lot of even just the natural grasses grew, and so the their cows, if they had a cow, had plenty to to eat, just to graze. But then after that, there was drought. and the third year we were there. so the second year of the drought, I remember asking a friend who lived in a village. Uh, about an hour or so walk away, I said, how are you doing? And she said, oh, God is so good. No one has starved to death without a trace of irony. And I, I just, I thought, wow, my, uh, I was chastened in my uh, set of assumptions. So yeah, the, the call of God to look, to look out, for others trusting that you will be cared for is so powerful. Wow. And that that is the core message of Deuteronomy as well with all of these laws is you need to trust me uh, for the increase. Uh, You you give away the first fruits. You know, I I interviewed uh, an organic farmer over the first fruit laws and she was very unchurched and was really surprised that I wanted to interview her. But hey, you know, I've, I've got a couple of tomato plants and I've got my chickens and, and, I, and I don't survive based on either of those. So this interview is really important to me. And I asked her about first fruits laws. What, what is it about the first tomato? What is it about the first lamb that makes it special? And she pondered over this. She's a, an extended family. They farm in central Kentucky. She's like, you know, honestly, there's nothing special about the first tomato. Um, In fact, it's probably not going to be the best tomato you're going to get. The plant will actually mature in its its, uh, production. But what's special about it, and I love this, you've waited all year for that first tomato. And honestly, you know, cutworms could move in next week and you might not get another. So I guess, this is her talking to me, I guess your biblical law is about trusting that there's going to be more harvests to come. It's like, you have no idea what you're talking about, girl, and how powerful that is. Because you give away the first. You don't give away the second. You don't give away the 10th. You give away the first. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing with the lambs. The only thing she had to say about the firstborn of the flock was that a firstborn often can predict... Um, how productive a ewe or um, you know a cow is going to be. Um, the other thing one of my students said he was a lifetime rancher is that it's, it's if if a heifer if a ewe is going to slough, meaning miscarriage they'll miscarry the firstborn which I haven't quite put those dots together yet but it was interesting. Oh, no, that's it. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. As you've, uh, I mean, you've just covered so much ground. Is there, uh, people will want to start with Epic of Eden as they want to get into, into all of this. And as you think about uh, a biblical Old Testament book, is there, a, is there one that rises to the top that you say uh a person should read or one that you read on a regular basis, or maybe there's a chapter that you go back to what in Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let me say something we haven't talked about is I, I also have a, about a dozen at this point, adult curriculums that, um, I've, uh, filmed and, uh, made accessible to the lady. And that's a great place to start. And Epic of Eden actually has, um, a a video version that you can do with adult classes, um, home groups, all that sort of thing. Um, But to answer both questions, the book I read the most is actually the book of Psalms. And I read the book of Psalms because as Athanasius said, unlike all of the biblical books that speak to us, Psalms speaks for us. And if I'm not involved in a particular study, that's my default. And I will go back to the book of Psalms. And the older I get and the older I get in the faith, and the more I suffer, <laughs> honestly, the more the book of Psalms speaks to me. And I I did recently put out a curriculum with Harper Collins on Psalms, if if folks are interested in that one. Um, that's that, fabulous. Yes. That's a good place to mentioning that. If I were trying to understand the Old Testament, like if that's where I was going for a first book, um, it would probably be Genesis um, because Genesis, uh, gosh, Genesis, the book of Genesis and Exodus are really like the Gospels when you're comparing to the New Testament. They lay all the groundwork for what's to come. Who are our people? What is the inheritance we're after? Where did this all start and how did it get messed up? So if, if there's someone sitting out there who hasn't ever read the Old Testament, I, I, would, I would recommend Genesis and Exodus. And you know how uh, people always pick up the Bible and they think, I'm going to read all the way through it. Don't do that with the Old Testament because it's not actually in chronological order, <laughs> which stuns people yes. all the time but genesis and exodus are in chronological order they tell the greatest stories of the foundation of our faith that that's where i'd start oh that sounds great oh well sandy thank you so much oh boy i just i, I loved our conversation awesome. and i encourage our listeners to check out epic of eden stewards of eden the Psalms, all the all the material that you've uh, created, is that at Seedbed, or do you have your own um, uh, website, or how how do people get it? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't have my own website, but I do have an Amazon author page. That's a really easy place to find um, my various publications, and Amazon will tag you into the the original publishers, which uh, that should do it. That's probably the easiest way to okay. do it. That's terrific. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. This has been absolutely fantastic to visit with you. And uh, thanks so much for coming on The Alabaster Jar. Hey, it is such a privilege to be here. Thank you for the invitation and how much fun to catch up with the amazing Lynn Coick.
0: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Sandy Richter, be sure to head over to today's episode description. You'll find a link to her books and Bible study curriculums, as well as a link to her Seminary Now course, Stewards of Eden, Scripture and the Environment. We've included a special link for Alabaster Jar listeners to receive 30% off your Seminary Now subscription. If you would like to hear more on today's topic, you may want to go back to last week's episode and check out our conversation with biologist, Dr. Kristen Page. We had a great conversation about discovering wonder in creation and environmental stewardship. As always, we appreciate your support and invite you to subscribe, share this episode, and join us here next week for another episode of The Alabaster Jar.